So for me, it was now the first real chance I'd had in my life to sit down and look and say, what do I really want to do? When I was starting out my initial ventures and, you know, things were going south, they were like, you know, you still have the option to tap out and go back. Uh, the government has given you on a silver platter free money and you're all making losses. Why? Is the naivety you walk in with <laughs> whatever you're doing. Um, you always assume you can do things bigger, better, faster than, than anyone else. If, if someone had told me it would take me close to tears to get that signature across the line, I don't know if I would have done it. Huh? The same fintechs that might mm -hmm. raise very easily to start off might be judged very harshly in their next step and make it difficult for them. So every company has its own individual journey. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Finding African Unicorns podcast of myself, Kweku Debra. On this podcast, what I do is I sit down with amazing founders from some of the most promising startups on the African continent, and we talk about a bunch of things. We talk about the journey and the path that they've had to follow to get to this point. We get into a bit of the learnings that they've picked up along the way, some of them truly harsh lessons. And we also get a sneak peek into some of the things that they're doing to really elevate the status of their companies into true champions coming out of Africa. Now, if you like the content on this podcast and you like to listen to some more, watch some more videos, go ahead and subscribe, like the videos, and share with friends who you think might find this inspiring, some of whom probably are on the same unicorn journey. Also, you can subscribe to the content on this podcast via your favorite platforms. And here I'm referring to one, Google Podcast, two, Apple Podcast, and obviously three, Spotify. And now, let's get into this episode. And so on today's episode, we're going to be welcoming Atamua as guest to the Finding African Unicorns podcast. Arthur is a co-founder and the CEO of AI Care. And here's a story of how he and his insurtech company are transforming the motor vehicle insurance industry in Kenya and beyond. Stay tuned, and I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. Hello, everyone. Great to have you all. Uh, today, you know, I'm so excited about the conversation that we have. It's going to be about a topic that I think is going to be very, very exciting going forward. Uh, and, and the premise is that today we're going to be talking about cars, motor vehicles, specifically insurance on cars and, and, and motor vehicles. Uh, and so today we're going to be talking about an exciting startup. We've got a founder here in the house who's going to, who's looking at this problem, specifically insurance on motor vehicles, cars in Africa, and sort of really trying to transform that industry. So very exciting conversation. I can't, I can't wait to, to get in. But first of all, Arthur, you know, great to have you here. Um, why don't you, you know, quickly tell us a bit about yourself, uh, you know, what's sort of like the elevator pitch when it comes to, when it comes to Arthur. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, I guess I think of myself as a problem solver. So, um, across life, anything that I've found challenging, it's always been interesting to try and see how do we solve that be it on Wall Street with uh, commodity trading, coming back to Kenya and seeing um, the lack of that infrastructure and seeing how to solve that, to looking at insurance, seeing problems there, seeing how we can solve them. Also just like listening to other people's startups and seeing, oh, wow, if I was to do this, how would I do it differently? So 
Um, I do love a good challenge, and yeah, my my, my biggest interest in so is in solving problems. Fantastic, fantastic. So, so why don't we kick off the conversation and and maybe just talk a bit about your background, right? I typically see two types of archetypes. The first one is, you know, um, folks who are born on the continent uh, and maybe go to uni on the continent, and right after school they start a a, a company because maybe one they they just don't want to go into the corporate world or two, they have this burning idea they want to sort of go in. So I think that's one archetype. And then the second archetype I see is folks like you who, uh, you know, uh, are in the diaspora and then sort of have a burning desire to come back and, and do something on the continent, right? Now, the first account I saw of you when I was doing my research is that you actually went to Middleborough uh, College in the DC area in, in the US. How did you end up there? <laughs> yeah, really interesting. Um, yeah, so Middlebury is in is in Vermont in the northeast. And when I was looking at unis to go to, I mean, everyone has heard of like the, the Harvards, the Yales, and all of that. So I was looking at those, and our career advisor in high school came and told me, "Yeah, there's this nice small school in the northeast. Um, a former alumni of our." Well, high school was there, and he'd spoken really well of it. The good thing is also they had a, a good rugby program. So it was kind of like, yeah, I was very interested in rugby. I heard it's a very nice communal area, um, a very good community there. So that, that's what drew me to, to the place. I think what they forgot to mention is it's like the coldest place on earth. But <laughs> <laughs> it, was a, it was a very interesting experience. Oh, wow. Do, do you think you could have taking your rugby career a bit more seriously or it was just, you know, just of all, no, all just passion. passion. Okay. 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 I don't think I was ever good enough to take it that far, but it was a very, I think rugby is one of those very communal mm. family type sports where like the bonds are very close. So I enjoyed that kind of camaraderie and then being in that environment was good for me. Okay. It, it helped me a lot. Got it. Very clear. And, and just to clarify, right. So did you, did you, were you born in Kenya? Did you have a school in Kenya? Or, you know, how did that whole, how did you end up in, in, in Vermont? Yeah, I was born in Kenya. Um, went to my primary school and high school in Kenya. It was around the time when I was looking at what I want to do in university that I started looking at schools in the U.S. Okay. So the kind of courses I wanted to do, many of them were not available in Kenya. Um, so I started looking at U.S. schools for that, and then that's how I ended up finding Middlebury. Um, and yeah, I think I'd, I'd say that's one of my better decisions in life. Well, why do you say that? Um, I learned a lot. I think one of the things um, about the education system here was it focused a lot more on the content. So you, you you're really good at knowing whatever is in there in the content. Whereas the liberal arts education focused a bit more on um, expressing yourself and being able to generate some sort of original ideas and, and, and nurturing that side of things. And having performed well in the system here, um, I thought that would be a breeze for me, but it was, a, it was a very good learning experience. And for me, when I look at the real world, at least in, in the entrepreneurship journey that I've taken, there's a lot more talk on actually how you solve the problem 
than having one right answer to the problem. So that change in mindset, I think, was one of the things taking me towards the journey I've been on right now. Was it was it a for a young Kenyan who was who had moved to the US? Was it was it a quite a bit of a culture shock for you? Yeah, I mean, going to rural US, uh, you know, when you hear about the US as a kid, especially during that time, all you thought is that every place looks like New York, <laughs> so huge cities, huge skyscrapers. So it was a big shock for me when I landed and all I could see was farmland and manure everywhere. So it was it was a bit of a shock in that regard. Um, and then culturally, just adjusting to, you know, values, what matters to people, how people interact, small things that it's very hard to put a, a finger on, but it does affect a lot how you live your day to day. Um, so, yeah, the first maybe three months or so were rough as I adjusted to the culture. But then after that, I think I, I enjoyed myself. I, I remember when, you know, when I moved to, so I, I moved to the UK also for, for grad school. And I remember it being such a big culture shock. I remember one day, the very first day in class, we had this, you know, this lecturer come up, this professor, right? And after he had gone through the content for about 30 minutes, he said, hey, you know, guys, let's go for a tea break. I was like, wow, tea break, you know? <laughs> can we actually go for, you know, tea break? And he was like, you know, if you have any questions, just, you know, come, come here, come over here. Let's chat about it. I was like, wow, you can actually you know, walk up to your professor, right? And, and ask him questions. And it was so foreign to me, right? Which is why I was asking you about, you know, how, you know, whether there was a bit of a culture shock, you know, adapting to it. I mean, for me, it was. It was a, a real big uh, culture shock. Um, anyway, um, so so fast forward, um, you leave the, you, you, you leave the U.S. and and move to London to work with Credit Suisse. Did, did that happen? right after uni i mean how did how did that happen yeah so i think some of the times accidents in life help you a lot uh, so around the time i was graduating uh there i think it was george bush who was president or something reversed some law about the number of visas that are available so i ended up having a visa gap so i started working for credit suisse in new york and between my, you know, getting the correct work permit for there, I had a three-month gap that I needed to be elsewhere. And so um, I was offered the chance to go to London during that three-month gap. I figured if I'm going to be there for three months, why not make it six months, um, get to watch Arsenal finish up their season. Um, and then the next thing I knew, I was there eight, eight years. So. <laughs> What what started off as potentially a three month thing ended up being a seven and a half year stay there. What, was it a deliberate? So you studied physics and and computer science. Was it a deliberate decision to go work in in finance, or was that also just purely by accident? Um, yeah, I think a bit of both. Um, like one of the things around like the wall street banks, they recruit heavily in a lot of these types of schools. And I mean, if you have student loans to pay, the fastest way to pay those is, is with a decent paycheck. So wall street was very attractive from, from that regard. They've it also looked back at my kind of interest, even from when I was a young kid, I remember picking up the newspaper, looking at the 
foreign exchange um, numbers in the, in the newspaper and seeing some arbitrage opportunities in there. I'm like, so if this is there, this is that. And it, it never occurred to me until when I actually started trading that I had some sort of natural um, leaning towards towards those kind of patterns. So it was a bit of both finance came calling and at the same time, it was a good way to clear up the... Exactly, students. exactly. What what did you learn from from working with Credit Suisse that you feel like prepared you for for what you do now, right? Um, any any big any big any big learnings? I think the first thing about a trading floor is everything is distilled to the number. How much profit did you bring? And I think that purity of um, there is no BSing around. You could be the biggest talker, but at the end of the year, there's only one number to rate you by. Um, it helps a lot because you, you, it's more about execution than anything else. And that becomes really ingrained in you. And then um, small mistakes can cost you big time. So carelessness is really weeded out. Um, you know, you've had all these stories about a small fat finger that cost a bank a lot of money. So that whole process of training weeds that out of you. And now you find yourself looking for perfection in every small thing. I was on the trading side, but I remember my roommate, a uh, Zimbabwean guy, telling me about his experience on the investment banking side, where you'd spend all night looking for a double space on the presentation. Yep. Such that you became so good that if, if you give, if you give them a book in two seconds they can point out where double spaces are, missing periods, missing commas. So that level of attention to detail is important if you're going to eventually be successful in whatever you do. Like it's, it's a small things that make a difference, not not the Got it. Things. Got it. Now, um, Arthur, you and I share an interesting experience. I think we we're talking about it before this uh, this interview, which is. Both of us happen to be in London around the same time, both working in investment banking uh, in, in London, right? And in 2012, you know, Kwiku Adoboli happened. And and for those of you who don't know the Kwiku Adoboli story, it's basically a Ghanaian in the diaspora who used to also work in investment banking who um, allegedly uh, was involved in a massive trading scandal for UBS, right? I mean, this almost took UBS down in terms of the amount of losses that, you know, was accumulated. So so talking about sticky fingers and making mistakes and, and sort of losing money, it's a real thing. But, you know, just out of curiosity, at that time, yeah. did people look at you weird because maybe you was African, you're African, and you're like, hey, you know, do you know the guy? <laughs> uh, how, how was that experience for you? Yeah, I think I was telling you, it was one of those uh, Jesus and Peter moments where everyone was like, I have no idea who that guy is. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, there wasn't that many Africans on in, in Wall Street in, uh, in the city of London, so especially on the trading side. So you're bound to be, that's the first question that I got asked in every networking session. Despite the fact that I was in commodities and I think he was in some sort of rates environment, um, I got asked that question over and over and over. And I'm sure like the truth is somewhere in between because if you do look at how the, the trading floors operate, um, I found it hard to believe that he was able to do all that stuff without anyone on the desk having any idea. But at the end of the day, like, you know, whatever exactly. happened and, um, 
think the big lesson from, from, for me there was take responsibility for your own actions. Um, if, if things go south, huh, you have to be able to stand up and say, while everyone else was aware, I did my best and uh, I'm responsible for whatever I did and then everything else can, can move Fantastic. It, it's amazing how, like you said, it's amazing how there's so few of us. And when I say us, I mean, you know, Africans who actually work in Wall Street, right? So it's, it's, it's just amazing. It's just a handful of numbers you can literally count with, like, with your fingers, right? Anyway, so you you are in Credit Suisse for eight years, you know, doing well, um, earning good money, paying back your student loan and more. And then you decided to move back to, to Kenya. Why? Well, I think at some point... Um, I, I really got disillusioned with the whole thing. I remember one of the products I was trading was in the carbon sector, like carbon credits. It was uh, an emerging field in the commodities uh, trading sector. And when I saw how people were gaming that segment, um, and not just individuals, uh, nation states uh, changing their numbers, and, you know, that time I was young, idealistic, looking at this as a way of, of helping the world. Yet now people were gaming the stats to try and one-up, you know, another country. I think as I started now feeling empty inside, you know, what, what, what is all of this for? I, you study hard, you're a good student, you're supposed to be the people who bring change to the world, and all you're doing is reallocating capital from uh, your pockets to the next pockets. Um, so, yeah, I, I had a bit of press to the conscience there. And also at that time, I think the, the desks were not performing too well. So you could also see that um, there was a huge, huge change coming. So for me, it was now the first real chance I'd had in my life to sit down and look and say, what do I really want to do? Um, not, not, not from a circumstance where you just happen to find yourself in a job, but what can I purposefully do and push and move forward? Like, how can I redirect my life? So um, I'd always said I wanted to retire by 30 <laughs> when I was really young. And at that point in time, when I was hitting 30, I had like a short gardening leave break where I got to think through all these things and try and chart out how the next 5, 10, 15 mm. years would look like. So, yeah, that's kind of what led me towards moving Got it. back. So, so you, move, you move back to, to Kenya... Um, how, how supportive were the people around you in terms of you moving back? Uh, I think most people thought I was really stupid. Because the shoes on the other foot, I guess, it, I, I think one of the things around um, mental health, mental well-being is that when people assume when you're making good money, you're living in, in London, living the high life, that you're permanently happy. What they forget is, you know, once you get used to that lifestyle, it doesn't feel doesn't feel special to you, the individual. There's something more, something deeper that you yearn for. So leaving all of that to come start from scratch, try to figure stuff out on this side, burn through whatever savings I had. Um, everyone just kept looking at me and saying, you know, if I was you, I'd be in London. And even when I was starting out my initial ventures and, you know, things were going south, they were like, you know, you still have the option to tap out and go back. Um, yeah, so that part was a bit difficult because it's, it's hard to get people who really understand, who understand you. I feel like there should be 
uh, group therapy session for NASPER coming back where people can share their pains and experiences. But yeah, that was one of yeah. the other things. To... I, I completely yeah. res- it's like you and I probably live the same life. I remember when when I when I, when I decided to come back 2013, I remember everyone in my church was like, ah, this guy is crazy. What is this guy? You know? Uh and it's so it's so I think for, for us it's also a bit even more challenging because a lot of Africans who are in the diaspora, I think if you if you get a chance to work in like, you know, Wall Street credit to his Goldman Sachs, it's perceived as, oh, you've made it, right? And everyone's like, this guy, why are you leaving? Yeah. I remember calling my, my dad and telling him, hey, I'm coming back. He was like, don't come back. You know, bang the phone and, you know, but, you know, years years later, I think he realized <laughs> that it was the right decision to, to make. Anyway, so so moving forward, you, you came back to Kenya. You worked with the Nairobi Stock Exchange uh, for a bit. And then, interestingly, you started your your first startup, um, Amu Logistics. Um, <laughs> oh wow! Okay, I wasn't in that way when I when I came back. Um, I because I was in, in commodity trading, so naturally I just came here assuming that there will be some sort of bank mm. or trading house doing the same thing, and that fit right back in at a senior position. And yeah, I just found that like the infrastructure did not exist. The few people who were trading out of here were small shops that didn't really interest me. Um, and I guess my mind wasn't brought in yet. So I was looking for very, very, very specific things that would not exist in this size of market. So that what got me to start looking at building the, the, the startup, Amu Logistics. And the idea there was I had seen the government at the time was doing a bunch of road construction projects um, and they, they were sourcing materials from all these small-scale miners and all of them kept complaining about the kind of money they got back in. So I thought that is my way of making a difference in the world. So did that for about a year. Then I realized, you know, I knew no one. So I was burning through cash because... Um, I had no local knowledge about how stuff is done, about people in the sector, people I can talk to, ask questions. Um, and around the same time, the Nairobi Securities Exchange wanted to roll out derivatives, which having been a trader for a long time, I was a bit of an expert in. So um, I used my experience at the NSC as an, as an eye-opener to local capital markets, to local networking. At the same time, I will giving back to to the capital markets here, ensuring that I've put something together that would be helpful for the rest of the ecosystem. So I, I did my stint for a year there, made sure all their systems are set up well uh, to enable them to push that market forward. And now I felt I was ready to go back and take a second stab at, at, the, at the commodity startup, which, yeah. I think I paid my MBA <laughs> What's your asset. talking about MBA fees, right? So, what what were the and, and you know people keep talking about serial entrepreneurs and how you know you get better and faster and smarter the more businesses you start and some of them are successful, some of them fail, etc. How would you describe Amul Logistics? Was it success, failure, lukewarm? And what were the biggest learnings for you from that first uh, that first gig? Um. 
I mean, like commercially, huge <laughs> failure. Uh, in terms of learnings, I would say uh, success in some regards. Um, I was able to, I was able to to learn what I needed to do, what my strengths are, what my weaknesses are, and I got to learn what I needed in to find in a co-founder, in a partner. I got to learn the balance between building a product to perfection and um, going to market quickly. So I think balance was the biggest thing I learned out of that. And then most importantly, um, I learned that running out of cash can kill can kill any good idea. Like we had the best of ideas, best of intentions. Maybe one day in the future, I'll be able to revive it properly. Um, but you know, if, if you have a limited amount of money, there's only so far you can go um, if, you're, if you're not generating good revenue. So there were, I think, very strong lessons imprinted in me that I have carried on to my next venture. That if I hadn't learned those, I don't think I'd have gotten where I've gotten to now with Got whatever Got I am doing. So let's talk, about, let's talk about AI care. You know, now that we've sort of gone through the whole journey to, of how you got to this one, how, how would you describe... How would you describe AI care to, you know, your mother, you know, to friends? How, how would you describe it? I think one of the funny things is um, when when you have a startup, I think you get told a lot to figure out your 10-second pitch, your two-second pitch, your <clears throat> and, it keep, and it keeps evolving over time. And the more I think about it, the, the more I realize it's not an easy thing, huh? To be able to summarize everything you're working on into a 10-second soundbite. But when I, whenever I give it a stab, I talk about changing the face of insurance um, in the country. So there's many different ways people have been trying to do that. I see a lot of startups focusing on the distribution side of things. I feel like uh, the insurance experience is terrible across the board. And without building products designed end-to-end, so not just distribution, but the underwriting, the claims processes. Um, I think it would be very difficult to get the desired result that people are looking for. So my goal has to be that, to make sure that insurance changes for the better by creating products that are suitable um, for customers. So that is more of like a mission statement direction. But on the other hand, I also look at advancements in technology. So, you know, we've seen uh, mobile phones get to where they are in terms of processing power. Um, we've seen things like M-Pesa in Kenya uh, come out and become the de facto financial system across the board in the country. So technology is improving rapidly and a lot of sectors are picking that up. But when you look at insurance, their innovations are largely at face value. So there's so much technology out there, but they're really not leveraging it. You look at the size, the, the form, the structure of products, and they're largely unchanged in the last 10, 15, 20 years. All you do is take the same product and slap it on an app and it's, say, yeah. yep, it's now been digitized, which um, I think is a reason why the, the, the uptake is low, the penetration of insurance is low, because... It's not being built from a customer perspective. It's not taking the advantage of the advancements in technology. So for me, being able to take advantage of IoT devices, which are here with us to stay, 
is, is also a huge part of um, what I see we can change in insurance. Like if you have those as potential risk mitigants, why not utilize them? Is the question Got it. And, and so here, you, you, your customers are not end users like me. Your customers are insurance companies. Is that is that correct? Yes. Um, so actually both. Huh? Uh, I look at, I mean, I don't make money if you don't buy my product. But for you to buy my product, I have to convince an insurance company that um, what I'm doing is correct and will make money for all of us in the short term, long term, uh, medium term. The, I think one of the things that when you, when you touched on it a bit on the B2B sales, one of the things that I learned was you, you don't sell someone on a long term vision. There has to be some quick wins along the way for them. So uh, across the board, you have to be able to show that that product works. Both for the insurer yeah. and so, for so you basically a B to B to C type model. How many? I don't know whether you can share this. You can share, exactly. this, but what's what? What's, how many customers? Whether the number of insurance companies you're working with, or the type, the number of products you've been sold. Like, what's the sense of like the numbers? Just so that we can all we can picture it in our heads. Well, just to give you some uh, sort of. Uh, level feel in kenya we have i mean the numbers keep changing because of collapses but say 35 or so general insurers so that is a market for my product and um all i need is one to be able to roll out my my product so i have i have oh, three of them that i'm working with right now um we're working on rolling out two two different products one for vehicle drivers um, and then another one, which I guess is this product behind me here, the, for the Got motorcycle taxes. And, and how does this, I, I also, when I was doing a bit of research, I also came across an app called Trip Buddy. How does that fit into your ecosystem? So um, B2B sales take forever. <laughs> so as we were waiting for these insurers to say, yes, maybe I'll go out on a date with you, all that good stuff. Um, we realize we still need to understand how the end customer will interact with our products. So we came up with a very niche uh, product called Trip Buddy that was directly um, targeting individual customers for them to be able to utilize our systems for us to see how they interact with our app uh, so we can continue getting learnings as we're waiting. Because you know it, it would be stupid for us to just sit there and say, "Okay, um, let's burn through investor money while waiting for the insurer to say yes," while not utilizing that time to learn something. Time is one of the most precious resources that startups have, so that is Got how. It. So, so maybe is. talking about the 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 motor insurance product, right? How, how does it work? So, is it for first time? first-time bias of motor insurance? Is it second-time bias? Is there a device that you have to put in your car? How does that, can you just walk us through a bit about how it works and how it actually solves some of the problems that you've seen in the in insurance industry? So if, if we're looking for a problem statement that we're solving, like direct to this product, um, insurers are losing money across the board underwriting motor insurance. So the first thing is, what is a profitable product look like for, for insurance? Then the second thing is, yeah, they're losing money. Why? 
Um, so I've mentioned the product is one thing that is not suitable, but they've also had lots of fraud and uh, losses due to that. So trying to address both of these things in, in, in one product was what we did. Now, with our paper kilometer insurance product for cars, we're specifically targeting low mileage drivers. So we've, we've done our studies and we found that low mileage drivers are least, you know, they, they claim the least. And it's not that hard for you to imagine that if I drive less, then I am likely to have less, fewer accidents, right? So that is who we're targeting. Um, how the product works is we ask you to self-disclose um, what kind of driving distance you do. So if you, if you commute two kilometers per, you know, per day or five kilometers per day, you're not going to be doing any more than five, 6,000 kilometers a year. If you drive your car once a week on Sundays to go to church and back home, that car is not doing a lot of distance. So people can very quickly self-diagnose what cluster they fall into. And then once they've, they've done that, then we sell them a limited number of kilometers that we believe will make a profitable product for the insurer and also ensure that you as a customer get a significant discount because you are not Got one it. of the bad And, and before this, you know, you would have, even if you're a low mileage driver, you'd have paid the same as, as a high mileage driver. Is that, is that what it is? Exactly. Yeah. So our, our, our idea is like, it's an entryway into uh, motor insurance, uh, it, an introductory <clears throat> telematics product. It's the easiest for us to sell. You drive less, you pay less. Um, maybe uh, just, I'm very curious how you actually decided to go after this problem and opportunity, right? So typically, I guess if you're a founder, you, 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 the idea behind it is something that either A, you've sort of personally experienced or B, someone close to you, you know, has experienced a problem or, or, or C, you just look at some hard facts and analysis and you say, Hey, this is an opportunity, right? So for you and your, on your co-founder, how did you guys, what, how did you guys decide, Hey, this is what we actually wanted to, to do. Right. And especially for you as your second, your second venture. So, um, I was in the Antler program. Um, and interestingly enough, I went into the Antler program looking for co-founders to come help me uh-huh. fix my existing business. I went in there with an open mind. So in, in, in the first week of the Antler program, um, we were doing design sprints on several different industries. Um, I looked at ideas in health, in, in banking, in fashion. Um, and eventually when I got to their ideas in insurance, like just looking at the sector as a whole, um, it struck me and really, really struck me when I saw wow. 80% wow. of insurers losing money underwriting motor. In my head, I kept saying, well, that's like the one, one of the few mandatory segments. It's the biggest premium earner for insurers. Like the government has given you on a silver platter free money and you're all making losses. Why? And, you know, my wife is in insurance. So actually, after looking at that, I went home and asked her, like, is this really true? How, how do you I, make I money? I couldn't believe it. 
And then um, I remember we had to do presentation. Yeah, <laughs> like, you know, like, why would you have your biggest business line being a loss leader? And when, when I went to, so every week we had presentations to the partners uh, at Antler, showing them, okay, this is uh, the idea we're looking at. There seems to be something, some potential there. And I think for the first three weeks, every time I presented this insurance idea, they kept telling me something must be wrong with your analysis of the statistics. So every time people doubted me, I got more and more emboldened that like this might actually be something that's super, super big. Because if every time I tell people, people look at me in the shot, then it means that if I solve that, then there is a significant amount of societal good we're, we're doing there. So that's what got me into it. And then the other thing also was when I looked at my skill sets, I just come from NSC having built their risk engine there. Financial math is the same across the board, whether you're in insurance or in banking, like it's just two sides of the same coin. So not only was it an interesting problem, I had the, and I was looking at it from the outside coming in, but I also had the technical skills that allowed me to be able to analyze this from a point of knowledge. I wasn't just talking, I, I wasn't something that I could do something about it. And my co-founder as well, who has a background in spatial artificial intelligence, was someone who was able to, you know, take that kind of data and come up with very cool algorithms for solving that. So as a team, we had the requisite skill sets to really attack this problem hard. On a scale of one to 10, right? One being easy and 10 being very challenging. How would you rank like building, uh, you know, these products and these solutions, right? It it sounds so sexy, but I guess the question is how how hard, I wonder how hard it is. Where, Where would you put it and why? (laughs) the thing is that when 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 you're doing design sprints and starting off and thinking about building the business um you think about your day-to-day and just assume your day-to-day will Mm. be the the sexy stuff like if i'm a math geek then it would be the math every day analyzing that kind of stuff um but like in, in, in the real world, it's not. Huh? <laughs> you find yourself spending 99% of your time doing things that you had no idea what part of what you're solving. I spend half my day making phone calls to people who will not pick up my phone, um, but I still have to keep calling every day because if I don't, things will not move. I spend a good chunk of time just on administrative stuff like where are we on this? Where are we on that? Like, you know, things that I'd have never imagined would be part of my day-to-day. But sometimes when I see people say, I don't want to work in corporate anymore. I want to go do my own thing where I am my own boss. I get to do what I enjoy. <laughs> I, yep. I tell them, like, take that with a... <laughs> think about it carefully because it's like you, if you enjoy one bit of the work, uh, you'll find you still 80%, 90% of what you do to make all that stuff work is mundane day-to-day, day-to-day slogging, if I can call it that. So, yeah, it's, it's been difficult, but it's also been rewarding. And there's a lot of things that I've learned across the board. When we started off, we didn't have anyone in, in marketing. And we knew that was a small gap for us, but we, didn't, we knew it was a gap. We didn't know how big it was as a gap. 
until I started seeing, you know, how we're communicating our stuff, social media posts. People think it's an easy thing to go out and put posts on a daily basis until you have to do it and you, and you have a blank slate every day to type something right. up. Yeah. And if your head's not wired that way, it's not, right? Like it's, it's, it's very, very, very challenging. So when we brought someone in who was able to do that and I could see the difference in their competence compared to mine, like it was, was encouraging to see the business moving forward. But for me, it was also a point of personal growth. I went from, I had no idea how to design to, I learned how to passively design to get our fantastic, fantastic. Um, talking about the challenges, right? Uh, maybe that's a good segue into, you know, your model, which is B two B to C, right? Where sort of the the primary um, customer, in a way, might be sort of the insurance companies, or the general insurance companies, right? Now, you know, I think globally, people are always excited about B two B type models because, hey, you sign up one. Like you sign up one customer and, you know, you've got volumes, right? Versus B2C where you actually literally have to go and sign up individuals one by one by one, right? Um, and so I always think that, you know, globally it's, it's very sexy, but, you know, in Africa, not so much because even getting that one is a whole journey like on itself, right? So I think for me, what I wanted to sort of hear from you is how has the experience been like for you as a startup founder, right? Where you're your the, your customers are basically you know institutions and 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 businesses right how, how long did it take for you to get that your first one and what are some of the the learnings that you you had along the way if if someone had told me it would take me close to tears to get that signature across the line i don't know if i would have done it huh? so the good thing about being uh a startup founder is the naivety you walk in with <laughs> whatever you're doing. Um, you always assume you can do things bigger, better, faster than, than anyone else. And it's that belief that keeps you going day to day to day. So when I got into it, I really thought I'd be able to get all these people signed up in the way I wanted to and have product, products launched with them in three months. And I had really good early conversations. And so, you know, you talk to people, they're excited. You assume like, okay, because you've gotten everyone, including the CEO, excited, you're, you're sorted, you're done. Then I found out, for example, what board meetings mean in these large corporations. Um, <clears throat> you'd have a board meeting and for them to prepare for the board meeting three weeks before they are unavailable. Two weeks after, they're unavailable. So for a six-week window, you can't talk to them. Then in that small six-week, next six-week window, um, they're available. You have one or two meetings with them. And then everything pauses because for another six-week window, they have board meetings. So you find momentum just keeps dying. Um, so that was very, very difficult. And you look for hacks on how to speed up the process, how to... Um, make them onboard your product faster. But they, I think for some of these things, they, there's no substitute for time. It just takes time. And also refinement. Um, when we finally cracked it, it was because we had spent so much time knocking on the doors that we kept gathering more and more and more information to the point where when we came in, 
we came in with a no-brainer of a proposition. I'm not looking to just partner with you. I have this very specific product, this very specific way of doing it, and here is the backing data that shows that this will work. It's a very different conversation from, we have this product here, we want to sit down with you to figure out how to commercialize it, which is kind of how we, we went into it when, when starting off. Um, and then the other thing around the B2B, apart from the sales cycle, is the maturity of products. Um, depending on the industry, the, the expectation of product maturity is much, much, much higher on B2B than on B2C. You could put together a quick app, get like early adopting users who are happy to, to deal with a few bugs. If you're going after a very large listed corporation, they don't know what a startup is. They just know I'm dealing with another corporate. So your product maturity has to be at a certain point. Yeah. And then when you're raising money, <laughs> um, you know, milestones. So when, when you have a B2C product, because you have those early adopting clients who are willing to take a slightly weak MVP, you have revenue yeah. traction. If you're dealing with, you know, corporations that will take two years to say yes or no, you better have the runway to, to carry you through that long, difficult journey. Um, you're, you're judged on a very different metric. I think these are some of the things that people might not be very well aware of when they're getting into it, that knowing that beforehand could really change your fundraising strategy, could change your commercialization strategy. We've learned a lot of that along the way. So you're always learning. But I, I think if I to come back and redo this whole thing again, there's probably a few things that I would change. What are some of the things that I've done differently? Well, I think the first thing is the, the, the specific, very, very, very specific value proposition. Um, I think I spent less time doing that. I, I knew we had something good. I knew we had something that could give value to the insurers and we were able to demonstrate. Um, but I didn't have my own data. So whenever I went to them, I went to them saying, like, here's all the literature and all the stuff that other people have done in other countries. Um, and we, we can do the same for you. Um, here's how our system works and we have all these smart people behind it doing all these things. So it got them excited enough, but I don't think the willpower, the, the, the willingness to move forward was there from them. If I was to do it again, got I'd it. spend, got it. to walk into an insurer saying, I created TripBuddy, I have all these customers here, um, I'm showing you what my customers using TripBuddy are telling me. So let's serve them first. You know, that, that changes the dynamic a lot in terms of how the conversations go. Then same thing also with uh, raising money. You know, you, you look at how much you're raising and sometimes you end up raising too little because you, you assume the sales cycle is shorter. You'll be able to show traction much, much, much faster. But if you're dealing with people like this, then it helps having a larger war chest to enable you to go through this whole long sales cycle and come out of it um, positive. So we've, 
I think that's those are the two things that I would change about how I would have approached things. Maybe as as a wrap up topic, right? Let, let's talk a bit about yeah. the the finance side. Um, are you able to how much are you able to share how much you've been able to sort of raise to date or any range just to get a sense of how much external fund you've been able to raise? Uh, I'm trying to see how to be diplomatic about the whole thing. Um, and, and still helpful. We got it. We've we've not we've not raised we've raised, we've raised less than a million dollars um, to date. But um, the the, mm. the key thing when you're going out to raise is raise what you need. Yeah? I think sometimes also as founders we get drawn into looking at oh this guy's raised fifty this guy's raised thirty. Um, I, I need to like and start using that as a yardstick for success. Um, raising money is not a yardstick for success. In fact, the more you raise, the more you're beholden to whoever you raise from. <clears throat> it should be there to, <clears throat> to, to help you meet a certain goal. But I also believe that we need to be realistic as founders about how much we actually need to get us there. Um, sometimes, you know, if someone's offering you a 50K check, um, you will say 50K can take you to the moon and back. And in actual sense, you know 50K will not <clears throat> move, the, move the needle. You find people doing side hustles yeah. um, to supplement some of the income because like, the company can't pay them enough. And while I have no problem with the side hustle, you have to also understand that no yep. when you do that side hustle, it's taking focus away from your day job. So you, you get out what you put in. Um, so I think, yeah, like for me, part of what I've learned is being a bit more realistic about what our requirements are to enable us to get to the next milestone. Um, and also trying to understand like what, what sector you're in, what segment you're in. Um, InsureTech has not been necessarily as sexy as the rest of FinTech. So when we are out there raising, we also have to understand our valuations will be lower. Um, it'll take us longer to get um, the right kind of fit on, on the investor side. It's just, you know, um, by virtue of where we are um, as a segment, as a company in terms of stage. Because <clears throat> you know, the same FinTechs that might mm -hmm. raise very easily to start off might be judged very harshly in their next step and make it difficult for them. So every company has its own individual journey. And the sooner you understand what your journey is, what the expectations are for your company are, for you to be able to grow and, and then move on to the next step, I think you'll have a much smoother experience in the, in the, in the markets when you're raising. Um, and also learning along the way. Yeah? So, um, I, I don't. I can't quite say that I've gotten it 100%. Even the people who've gotten it 100%, mm. you still see them come back and say, oh, I wish I knew this other thing because you, you're constantly learning. And the world's constantly changing. I mean, no one expected what happened in, was it May or April, to happen, right? Um, exactly. You could have modeled for a lot of things, not that. Um, and that has had an adverse effect on different companies. I mean, companies are shutting down now because some of them were reliant on their next round. And 
what happened when the market's drying up means mm-hmm. that there is no next round without hitting X metric. Um, you know, I was talking about revenue earlier. You look at where we are as a, as, as a continent, we're not in Silicon Valley where you just turn the revenue tap on and it comes on instantly. Um, where we are, it takes a long time for these things to move for us to get to the next stage. And if we're not um, realistic around our expectations, around how quickly we can turn stuff around, then again, you end up facing, you know, existential problems. So I think not just me, for all founders across the board, there's been a lot of learnings um, during this period about how we very quickly need to be self-sustaining businesses just because of the, the part of the world we're in and, and how long it takes for us to be able to to complete raises, to close clients, to, to, to do everything else. So we have to really prioritize um, generating revenue. Well, I'm picking up a lot of themes, a lot of pieces of advice here. One is raise you know, what you need and no more, right? Uh, I'm also hearing something about, you know, don't, don't, don't use other people's sort of fundraise as a metric of success because it's not right. Uh, if any, if any, in any case that actually the more you raise, the more it raises the stakes for you. Right. I'm also hearing something around taking the time to, um, to figure out who yeah. are the right investors for you. Right. Um, and the people who sort of believe in the products also believe in just the amount of time it's going to take. Right. Um, to, to get to the point where you need to be. I'm also hearing something which is very interesting, which is, you know, startups in Africa probably need to be a lot more conscious around, uh, turning the green, right? And be self-sustaining versus relying on external funding to continue to drive growth for some foreseeable future where they have to now sort of figure out the economic model, right? Uh, and here it's around how do you actually make the, you know, monetize uh, the product as, as quickly as possible. Uh, I mean, those are fantastic, uh, fantastic points for fundraising. Um, in terms of wrapping up, right? Um, so you started with motor insurance uh, in, in Kenya, right? Um, what is the end game for AI care? Is it you're going to go deeper into transportation? Are you thinking about sort of taking sort of the, the, the technology and applying it to sort of other financial services, uh, services lines, what sort of like the, um, what's the end game for you as you think about it? And, and I ask this because typically final entrepreneurs, what they tell you, what they tell you in the beginning is really not what they have in mind, right? For the end goal. What, what does it look like for you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, speaking today, yeah, cause all these things change in real time. Um, they, Looking at who we have on board, looking at our strength, our strength is in data science, analytics, managing risk. So if I looked at what we're doing in motor today in Kenya, first of all, we can replicate that across not just Africa, even um, Southeast Asia, South America, places with high penetration of motorcycles that are very uninsured. So just as an initial growth trajectory, I think that that's something that can serve us very well for the short to medium term. Um, then also looking at how that technology can apply in different segments. Well, 
if I can put a tracker in a car, get data, utilize that data to underwrite better motor, well, um, when people are wearing smartwatches, they become a lot cheaper. These smart rings that are being worn that, while expensive now, in two, three, five years, could be extremely affordable um, across the board. So if you're able to do that with vehicles, why not do that with human beings and also grow the, the health insurance business in, in that regard and change it for the better in that regard? Now, going back to the mobility data that we're collecting, it serves insurers as well. It serves asset financiers as well. Um, I was just talking to an urban planner about two weeks ago, and the first thing he said when he looked at our data was, it would be very interesting to find mm. out if street design affects driving behavior. And from my data, it's something that's very easy for like a quick data science experiment for us to be able to say. So then that goes back into affecting policy, affecting, um, you know, which roads are designed, how are the roads designed, how is traffic passing through. So also utilizing that um, from a societal perspective to improve um, outcomes. I mean, one of the biggest things for us right now is road safety and how change in utilizing driver behavior data can help improve road safety outcomes um, across the across the continent. So being able to plow that back in um, across segments um, to that. And then finally, mm. if I know where vehicles are, if I know where you go, then you know, building loyalty programs for people is something that we can also do quite well. Um, you're able to tell people uh, the best place to go to service their car, the best kind of oils to use. Like, so there's a lot of different, you know, there's a meme that always goes around about how the past is gone and then you see a dot and you see a whole branch of trees on how the future could look like. And for me, I see the possibilities are so many with the technology and team that we've put together. Thanks for joining us. Um, we wish you and the rest of the team at AI Care all the best. Looking forward to all the exciting things that you're going to be, you're going to be launching and, and also just your Africa-wide expansion. All the best and, and thanks a lot for joining us.